distinguished president of the United States. Governor Clinton is now President Bill Clinton. Too close to call. Here it is, George W. Bush re-elected. Barack Obama, president-elect of the United States. You're listening to a special edition of Blue Collar Convos, Election 2020, with Jordan Roan. The end is near, my friends. We are in the final countdown. It's Election Eve, and you're listening to Blue Collar Convos. I am Jordan Roan, and I'm so grateful for you to stop on by and join us for this very special, possibly nerve-wracking, heart-pounding, anxiety-inducing preview special of the podcast. This is a very special episode, as you could probably tell from the intro music. Never before has that been used. We have deviated away from our traditional blue-collar convos theme song and voiceover because, truthfully, I just really dig the NBC election theme song, which is what you heard there at the beginning of this episode. I think two of the most adrenaline-producing moments of election night for me are, number one, when you hear that theme song, and number two, when you hear the quote, we have ourselves a major projection to make. It really is the best part of election night, and of course, if you're an election nerd, I guess, like I am, then you might feel the same way. But that's all part of the excitement taking place tomorrow on Election Day. And we're not quite there yet. So what has me excited about Election Eve is the fact that I get to talk to one of the leading forecasters of this election and many other elections. And that is Dan Krowich, founder of the Progress Campaign. The fact of the matter is there's... Not much commentary left to give. The speculation is just about over. And we now have hard data and numbers that have been crunched by many, many smart people. And that is what we're going to listen to on this episode. Not what we want to see happen. Because we all know what I want to see happen. Probably what you want to see happen. But we need to know what to expect so that we can all prepare ourselves. Because I think we all remember 2016. We were all very, very excited about seeing history made with Hillary Clinton. And that just wasn't meant to be. But we thought it was meant to be because of the polling and the data and the leading experts on the television screens telling us this is what was going to happen and it didn't happen. So that's why right now is the perfect time to turn off the news, to stop listening to commentary, to swipe out of Twitter, and let's listen to the folks who know more about this than anybody does. And that is the individuals at the Progress Campaign, led by their fearless leader, Dan Krolwich, who joins me right now. First off, Dan, I just want to thank you so much for joining me here on the podcast and helping to break down what is about to be a major historical turning point in our nation's history. So, For you to take the time out of your incredibly busy week to do so is much appreciated, and I'm sure it is by our audience as well. I just want to begin by saying, for all of you listeners out there who may not be too familiar with the Progress Campaign and their forecast, you will quickly become acquainted with it. But I am so impressed by your organization, Dan, and everybody at the Progress Campaign. Folks, they operate a massive election forecast and personally it is my favorite one and I don't say that because its founder is speaking to me now it's the fact that since I first discovered them they have been 
on top of the game. And I have their tweet notifications on. Their site is bookmarked. I'm a super fan of the Progress Campaign. And I, I continue to get notifications really on the hour uh, about what's going on in the country, what's going on in the swing states. So when I was you know, trying to plan out this special election preview and who I wanted to partner up with as our expert-in-chief, so to speak, for, for the political forecast, my first message was to Dan and his team, and they graciously agreed to join me here today. For that, I am thankful. So without further ado, Dan, can you just tell our listeners a little bit about the Progress Campaign? Why did you start it, and how did it take off the way it has? We are originally a group of organizers that got together from across the country after uh, a couple of years of working on a whole bunch of different campaigns with the um, objective of elevating down-ballot candidates and talking to different folks um, about how important not just uh, the presidential level is, uh, but also organizing for, for folks running for the state legislature, for the U.S. House, and for other statewide and local elections, where we've seen a big deficit with this. There's a lot of organizing going along, going around for uh, top of the ticket, but uh, then uh, doesn't happen with quite the intensity of, of down-ballot candidates. And what we found over the course of these elections that we've been organizing for for the past decade is that the more you are able to organize on a local level for local candidates, you actually reach more voters and you're able to drive turnout. And um, when, for example, in 2018, when we saw a lot of these down-ballot races being contested by Democrats after pretty much more than a decade of, uh, of Republicans running unopposed, they actually elevated um, all across the, the state. And we ended up having much higher turnout and that helped flip a lot more um, up ballot uh, races, as well as as the importance of um, of running local elections. That's fantastic, and I think that's why I'm such a big fan is because of your organizing backgrounds. You know, so often we hear from you know these large companies and high profile pollsters, so to speak, and they really are in this business to make profits for themselves and to you know, ride that neutral line, whereas you and the progress campaign, you do take a side, and you take the side of progress, and you help to elevate down-ballot candidates, particularly, I think, you know, where I'm coming from in central PA, rural candidates have an advantage when they're able to utilize your resources and and take that that small, specific data that may help turn the tide for them in their race when you look at your county by county forecasts. And I know we'll talk a little bit more about that later on, but can you briefly describe uh, in layman's terms for all of us non uh, data and forecast extraordinaires what goes into your methodology for forecasting? So our methodology is is driven by an organizing tool. It is not the classic um, um, merging of statewide polls and different fundamentals, like a lot of other forecasters, like other great forecasts do, like 538 or The Economist. Um, but we actually build it from the ground up. So what we've done is we've studied each one of these roughly 36,000 precincts in the country. We've run uh, two separate models on them. One is a turnout model, which we use different data like voter registration, census data, domestic migration to determine how many voters are going to show up. We break those down by demographics. And then the second model is a voting intention model, meaning how those folks are intended to vote. And then we build that up to project each county and then build that up to project each state. And we use uh, polling, uh, a lot of polling data, a lot of registration data, um, and a lot of specific organizing data like phone banking, canvassing, um, and other operations like that. Wow, so it's clear that you have a very robust operation in terms of forecasting. But then I look back to 2016, and I think about the number one heartbreak that so many of us felt when we learned how the polling was not matching up with the results quite as anticipated. 
So some folks say, you know, 2016 was a disaster for polling. And then you have others who say, well, no, you know, the national averages really were pretty accurate. So what is your stance on what happened in 2016? Because that was all pre-progress campaign when you were all you know, still working as organizers. So why should we be more confident in the polling of 2020, of your methodology? Um, there's been a lot of study about what actually happened in 2016 when it comes to polling. I think the biggest deficit was the fact that pollsters did not weigh by education, so you ended up getting a lot of white voters who had a college degree and not a lot of voters who did not have a college degree. And we saw in 2016 how those split dramatically and, and did show margins much higher uh, for Clinton um, relative to the white working class folks without a college degree who uh, ended up uh, showing up and moving quite heavily from Obama to Trump. But one of the other main reasons, I think, is why this election is different. First of all, they took care of that. But the main reason why we've seen evidence to the fact that um, that that Hillary Clinton lost in 2016 was the fact that there was this narrative across the country that she was certain to win, and what that happened, and what that ha what made happen is, given the fact that she was a very disliked candidate and hated even in the Democratic circles, it created this narrative, and and a lot of Democrats, millions across the Midwest alone, who uh, come election day said, hey, you know what, she's going to win anyways. I don't yep. really like her. Why am I showing up to vote for her? And they ended up staying home. And that's one of the major reasons why um, why she lost, particularly in the Midwest, right? We can zero in on places like Detroit, where 100,000 Democrats stayed home. She did gain in the suburbs, those Romney voters, but there were a lot of Democrats who just didn't show up. And that was one of the main reasons. And that's the difference between 2016 and now. There's tremendous enthusiasm to show up and vote. Joe Biden is a lot more liked than Hillary Clinton was. Uh, so even if folks see him as um, think that he might um, win in any case, they'll still show up and vote because they like him as a person um, more than they did Hillary Clinton. Uh, you know, separate, just uh, just dealing with the facts here. Um, of course. You know, nothing personally against Clinton. It's just that, you know, there's been a, a, a 30 year uh, campaign to, uh, to, to tarnish her name ever since she was first lady, and, and that came home to roost in the 2016 election. Absolutely. I think you have extremely valid points, and I think it's, of course, I'd be remiss to say that there was obviously a lot of unlikability when it comes to Hillary Clinton. I think also a huge player was the fact that she was a woman, which is extremely unfortunate that in the 21st century, we still have so many people who believe that a woman was not fit for the job. I remember watching Trump rallies, for instance, where reporters would go up and interview women themselves and ask them why they wouldn't vote for Hillary Clinton. And they would respond by saying, a woman shouldn't be president. We heard temperament, judgment. How could they do the job when there are other issues that women have to deal with, which is blatant sexism, of course. And I can only hope that Hillary Clinton is the last female candidate who has to deal with that kind of archaic intolerance. But it also reminds me of the fact that I continue to receive emails, and I've just received two in the past week, and they're from Our Revolution, of which I am a big fan. It's Bernie Sanders. Uh, the organization that you know he helped to launch, that his people helped to launch. And I don't think Bernie Sanders is sitting down typing these emails out, of course. But I'm getting these emails from Our Revolution, and I'm, I'm pulling up one right now from yesterday. And it, the subject line is, Our Revolution is doing the work Hillary Clinton failed to do in 2016. And they go on to talk about the Midwestern battleground states that Trump flipped, and the fact that Hillary Clinton ignored them. And this is from the executive director of Our Revolution. So I think it just goes back to showing that a lot of progressives, a lot of Bernie-style Democrats or Bernie independents, are still fuming over the fact that Donald Trump became president in the first place. 
because of both candidate, campaign, and party. And there were a lot of individuals responsible for that four years ago. But I want to move on now to asking you a little bit about your model and your forecast. Because you know the one thing that I find so fascinating, it's one of the reasons why I became so interested in your forecast, why it's bookmarked right now, and that is being able to zoom in on you know my Pennsylvania County in the heart of Trump country and seeing an actual forecast on your site about how my county is going to vote. So I always go on the you know New York Times map and NBC map and take a look how my county and all other small rural counties voted. But the fact that we are able to use your model and actually see projections about these counties is something that I find so fascinating. So my question is, how do you make these very specific projections on a county-by-county basis? Is it you know, using registration trends and past results? Can you just explain that a little bit more? So like we said earlier, we build these models up from each individual precinct. So we're able to project what our vote share is going to be in each individual county. So that's how uh, we're able to do that because we build this model from the ground up and we're not looking at it from the state down. Um, We use different uh, information like voter registration, which tells us a little more about the growth in these counties. and we're able to use different models and census data to break that down by precincts. Mm-hmm. And um, that gives that allows us to make these very specific projections on a county-by-county county basis. But also just to note that each individual county has its own margin of error, given the fact that we don't really know how many of these folks are going to show up based on registered voters. These are just assumptions that we make based on, like we said, ground-level organizing, enthusiasm, and favorability variables, and so uh, these things are obviously not, um, the, the, each individual county has its own margin of error. So when someone looks at that, they should uh, uh, recognize that as well. And while we're on the subject of Pennsylvania, we have seen Republicans gaining big numbers in the registration data compared to Democrats since 2016, particularly in central Pennsylvania, northern Pennsylvania, southwestern Pennsylvania, much of the state has apparently gotten more red in the past four years. So why should we Democrats here in Pennsylvania not be up in arms about this? And I guess why should the Trump campaign not see this as a more clear-cut path to victory. So the main reason why Democrats should not be that worried about the registration gain among Republicans in Pennsylvania is because most of that gain is being done by the Republican committees and the Trump campaign pushing for these lifelong uh, registered Democrats who have since 1996, um, ever since Gore ran in 2000, uh, throughout that period, became reliable Republican voters. And they've been voting Republican uh, for the past, for the better part of the past 30 years, Um, but they're still registered as Democrats. They participate in local elections, meaning they still vote for some uh, very centrist, very, um, very even conservative Democrats on the local level, so they stay registered as Democrats. But um, over the past couple of years, the Republican National Committee has put a lot of emphasis on making sure that they're changing their voter registration now that we're so polarized. So that's where most of the gains have come from. Um, the actual, So the bottom line here is that most of these gained registration voters are not new voters. They're simply registered Democrats who are converting over into being a registered Republican. This does not change any voting intention. So the fact that Democrats lost 200,000 voters, registered voters, and Republicans have gained them, uh, does not indicate anything about the vote intention this year. Uh, What does is the fact that Democrats have actually managed to to register, um, you know, tens if not hundreds of thousands of new voters in the suburbs. These, some of these are, you know, folks who were not participating in politics until recently. These are folks who uh, were, were Republican voters, voted for McCain and Romney, but have now voted maybe third party Uh, in 2016, or even voted for Clinton as a registered Republican in Pennsylvania, but then 
uh, moved over. So that's really where the, the actual voting trends, um, where the voting shifts have happened. It's so interesting that you say that, and I think it's a perfect explanation. And the fact of the matter is just, let me think, about a week and a half ago, I was out canvassing my precinct, of which I am a Democratic committee person for, and I approached the home of a 94-year-old lady and went up, knocked on the door, obviously kept my social distance, was wearing my mask, and she opens the door and I pull up my pamphlet for her, my Biden-Harris pamphlet that I was handing out, and she gets real close, takes a look at what I'm holding, because I don't think she could hear me quite well, and she looks at it and immediately turns around and runs straight back into her house. Like I was selling some sort of drug paraphernalia. I was I was uh, definitely taken back because this is a registered Democrat. And she goes back in her house. She turns and looks and says, no, 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 no. Never. Never would she vote for Joe. I'm a Republican, she says. And I just thought that was uh, very, very in line with what you just talked about. Because there are so many folks, especially in this rural central red tea part of Pennsylvania, that continue to be registered Democrats, but they would not vote for a Democrat, especially in this day and age. And I was also talking on a phone bank recently to somebody who was a registered Democrat. And it's one of the things that I think the Trump campaign has done a remarkable job at. Even though it's completely against my beliefs, I think it's completely 100% false. And that's coming out and saying that the modern-day Democratic Party are socialists and Kamala Harris is a communist. And, and that kind of language put out by the Trump campaign has resonated in these certain parts of the country where people listen to that on Fox News and they suddenly believe that Kamala Harris, who, by the way, was a target of progressives and those on the far left for not being progressive enough. The Trump campaign now says, no, she's actually a communist. And unfortunately, some people believe anything they hear. So thank you, Dan, for that explanation that I think should make everybody feel a little bit more comfortable when they look at registration data compared to actual forecasts for the election, which brings me to Frank that Frank Luntz, everybody knows Frank Luntz, if you know political polling, and Frank Luntz recently said, quote, if pollsters get it wrong again, then the polling industry is done. You can get it wrong once, but if they get it wrong a second time and Trump does win, it's going to be the end of public polling in politics, end quote. So is that true, Dan? And is there a certain pressure that the forecast industry is feeling to not screw this up? Uh, yeah, I mean, I mean, I understand it. I think that the fact that, that if pollsters do get it wrong as dramatically as they did in 2016, then... Uh, it'll definitely be the end of the, maybe not the end of the polling industry, but I think a lot of these, um, a lot of pollsters are going to have to take a really deep dive look into what they're doing and why they did and why they got it wrong. Um, on the other hand, though, I think it's important to remember that even in 2016, obviously polls were off in some areas in the Midwest, but most other polling was very accurate. And if you look at the last 10, 20, 30 elections, uh, maybe not presidential elections, but you look at the last um, you know, 60 years of polling, it, the accuracy has only increased. So the fact that we have one outlier election, or potentially even two, if we do, uh, you know, there's no evidence of it, but if we do have millions of shy Trump voters that end up showing up and, 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 handing, those, and uh, handing him this election and Trump wins uh, by, you know, hold, by losing Michigan and Wisconsin, but holding on to the rest and, and winning the Electoral College, um, then, then that's obviously... Uh, uh, 
still characterized as a fluke, but uh, I do think there's going to be some soul-searching within pollsters and, and forecasters. But again, I think it's important to remember that in the last 50 or 60 years, this has not really been the case. So uh, it's important to zoom out, especially given the fact that so many, um, so many of us have been introduced and part of politics since 2016. Um, but you got to remember that there are a lot of folks who have been doing this since uh, the, the 40s and 50s. And, and uh, you know, it, it's important to zoom out uh, once in a while when you're so involved in the politics and recognizing the fact that there are long-term trends um, and, and long-term phenomenons versus one outlier of an election. And let's just remind everyone that Frank Luntz himself has never been a 100% perfect prognosticator uh, 6.43 p.m., November 8th, 2016, at Frank Luntz writes, in case I wasn't clear enough from my previous tweets, Hillary Clinton will be the next president of the United States. So, Frank's been wrong before. Pollsters have been wrong before. Hopefully, we can all come together in harmony tomorrow night or in the next week or so and congratulate everyone on the remarkable accuracy of the 2020 cycle. So Dan, this is the part where I think everyone is just chomping at the bit to get to, and that is the state of the race. Where is the state of the presidential race right now? You know, We heard from Biden's campaign manager just last week saying that some numbers may be inflated to not let your guard down. How confident are you in Joe Biden's lead at the present moment. So yeah, I, I definitely don't buy the fact that he's up by 15 points or even by, by 12 or 13 points. I do think that the race is a little closer than that. Um, but the, the Biden does have the advantage right now in our forecast and by the data itself. Um, he is outside the margin of error um, in Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin which are the states needed to get him to 270 electoral votes. And, and that's the bottom line here. Um, you know, I, I don't think there has, when we backtest our forecast especially, but also, um, but also if you look at, at generally at forecasts and at polls, there has never really been um, a, a forecast or a poll over the long term, which was wrong outside the margin of error. Meaning, you know, we're not expecting a two or three point uh, win for Trump in, in a state like Wisconsin or, or Michigan, but we're expecting a large enough um, a large enough margin that even if the polls were as off as they were in 2016 and then some, uh, he'd still win. So I would characterize him having the advantage going into this. Um, there obviously can be surprises, and especially in states like Pennsylvania, where the Supreme Court does have the opportunity to weigh in, because we know that the Republicans and Trump administration is going to sue to prevent the counting of ballots, and that definitely could impact the election. Um, and we can see a lot of flukes like that. But if everybody who uh, has cast a ballot is counted, that data um, shows the fact that if the, that, that the election happening um, on Tuesday, Joe Biden is very likely to win that election, um, given the states that are outside the margin of error. That can mean he can win uh, only 278 electoral votes or 279 electoral votes. Um, or he can win 413, which is the maximum we give him on our current bell curve. Um, either way, he wins, and that's the bottom line here. So, um, you know, there obviously can be flukes and can be specific states which which have can which can have uh, some weird stuff going on. But at the end of the day, uh, his lead is pretty solid right now. Yeah, I'm glad that you mentioned the mail-in ballot legal battle situation that will be taking place is really already taking place in Pennsylvania. It is some cause for concern when you think about how many mail-in ballots were requested, how many mail-in ballots have not been received yet, where are those at. Uh, our uh, Lieutenant Governor John Fetterman has really been out there on the news outlets on Twitter saying, folks, we got to bank these ballots. we got to get them in. We can't have 100,000 ballots outstanding because we know the margin is just so tight and we can't afford to lose one vote. So I think it's important to remember that there's a lot of people fighting. 
for every vote to count. We'll be fighting all day, all week, however long it takes to make sure that every vote matters. And Pennsylvania has really done a, a good job, I think, led by you know Attorney General Josh Shapiro in fighting back against the Trump campaign's voter suppression tactics. So at this point, we just have to be believers in the fact that democracy will win the day, that everyone's voice will be heard. And I think it goes to show why we need high turnout. Because if, you know, I'm seeing some polls out there this morning talking about, you know, Biden up nine in a poll, and you know, those are the numbers that we need to ensure that whatever tactics and shady maneuvers that the right will try to pull in Pennsylvania will not hold much weight because the people will have spoken so resoundingly in favor of Joe Biden. So that leads me to my next question. Assuming that we're able to light up Pennsylvania blue tomorrow night or by the end of the week, Wisconsin, Michigan are able to turn things back around and go blue themselves. What is Donald Trump's path to re-election? Is there a path to re-election without the Rust Belt, without the blue wall? And what would that likeliest path be? Uh, without the Rust Belt, no. Um, th- there's no electoral pathway for him without winning one of those three states. Um, you know, obviously, if there's some massive unseen Hispanic swing towards him and he actually wins, Hispa- wins Hispanics or Latinos overall, then you can potentially see him uh, losing the Rust Belt states, but then winning um, New Mexico, Nevada, a couple of other states. Um, but even then, um, it's pretty hard uh, for him to get to those uh, to get to those numbers. The most likely pathway for him right now is uh, for him to uh, lose Michigan and Wisconsin, and potentially Nebraska second district, and and um, but then uh, uh, win Pennsylvania, and that's where he gets over that 270th electoral vote he needs to win. So, with everything that you currently know, let's imagine that it's tomorrow night, November 3rd, 2020, at 10 o'clock p.m. on the East Coast. How long will Americans have to wait until we hear, ladies and gentlemen, we have a massive projection to make and a winner is declared? Uh, So that's actually a tricky question. If um, any listeners want to go uh, onto our election day page that we just launched it is at ourprogress.org slash election um from the data that we're seeing right now we actually do believe that we're going to be able to project maybe not project a winner but we're going to be able to have a a very strong sense of who won the election um before midnight and that's probably going to happen by um by either calling uh florida or texas or north carolina for joe biden and that'll that'll basically cut off Trump's pathway to the to winning, even if he wins a state like Pennsylvania. Um, but I don't think we're going to actually project it. So we might have to go to sleep with a feeling and a sense, and we'll have to wait for more data. But um, uh, I do believe that we're going that that we're going to have a winner declared um, anywhere from midnight to to the early hours of the next morning. One of the things that I do want to mention is the fact that there are going to be there's going to be a lot of data going out there about what the current vote counter or at whatever given hour means to project uh, the rest of the election. And we're doing that as well. We have every single precinct that reports data gets fed into our model and it changes up the entire forecast, the entire model. We have, we have millions of lines of code running uh, throughout the election data to, to process all of this. And we very well might know, and you can see this by the, by the gauges that we have on the top of this page, that even from the first precinct votes coming in from the state of Indiana at 6 p.m. or 7 p.m., we might be able to confidently say that Joe Biden or Don, or will be able to will win this election or, Joe, or Donald Trump has a chance of winning this election. But I think it's important, for, especially for folks following this online and for pundits as well, to realize that 
Uh, first of all, we're probably not going to be able to project these votes just simply because there's so much mail-in ballots, which we only are going to get counted later on. So we just don't know how much of the vote is in for each individual precinct and each individual county or even each individual state. Um, and the second part of this is we don't want to be calling an election at 9 or 10 p.m. Um, while polls are still open out west, meaning we don't want to have a situation where we create this narrative that Joe Biden has won the election. And then all these folks in the Midwestern states, particularly in the, in the Western states, excuse me, particularly in a state like Nevada or Arizona, um, or even in, in, um, in other states which um, folks who are voting on election day simply go home or folks waiting on very long lines in Texas, and there's this narrative that was created, so they leave these lines. So I think it's important that we recognize the fact that we, you know, leave it to the professionals and um, uh, and sort of uh, act diligently when we when creating this narrative. Uh, but at the end of the day, I, I do believe that we will have a, uh, that the media and, and us as well will be able to call this uh, this election on election day. That reminds me, the Pennsylvania Secretary of State announced in a press conference last week that she would be structuring the election results website to include one whole page on the current precinct election results, and then the second page is the mail-in ballots that are still outstanding the number of ballots that have not been processed yet, which I think is a, a tremendous idea. I think every state should be doing the same so that individuals, campaigns, media outlets are not just looking at, okay, wow, with 90% of precincts reporting on election night, Donald Trump is up by 13 points. Well, yes, Donald Trump would be leading by that many, with 90% of precincts reporting. But those are the precincts on election day where Republicans predominantly will be dominating the polls. And the Democrats have voted and their ballots are still sitting in courthouses not yet processed through. So that's where I'm going to be looking on election night for Pennsylvania to make sure that I know that this thing is not being a landslide victory for Donald Trump. But in reality, we just have to be patient. Like you said, we might have to, it might be hard, but we might have to fall asleep with feelings of either joy or depression about how this thing is going rather than actually knowing the concrete results. So Dan, if you had to choose one biggest shocker in the Electoral College that we might see on election night, even if the probability of it happening is small right now, what would it be? What would be the stunner that sends shockwaves through both parties and the entire country? Well, I think that the biggest Electoral College shock on both sides is going to be if Donald Trump wins Nevada. Uh, that's probably up there on the list. There might be some other, you know, obviously if he wins New York, then that'll be a big shock. But but a uh, a doable uh, um, shocker will be uh, if he does win Nevada. Now, there, there are obviously a lot of different, there's a lot of data that doesn't support this. But again, uh, that's what the biggest shocker is going to be. On the Democratic side, I think that the biggest shock would be if Joe Biden wins a state like either Missouri or South Carolina. Um, which we have personally seen some data which we've integrated in the model. It takes it with a grain of salt, but we've still seen some data to support the fact that there might be enough growth in a lot of these suburbs like Charleston and Columbia and Greenville in South Carolina and in St. Louis at Kansas City and Columbia in Missouri, as well as the fact is that we're not going to see as enthusiastic moderate Republican slash ancestral Democrats showing up to vote for Trump, that we might actually see uh, very close elections in these states. And, and it's a big shock. It, this will be the biggest shocker on Biden's side if we see a state like uh, Missouri or South Carolina go for him on Election Day. I can just picture it now. 
former President Trump and former Senator Lindsey Graham, both on a golf cart driving through a South Carolina golf course after both being completely upset in that respective state, that would definitely be a shock to say the least. And and Nevada, I, I understand what you're saying there because I remember watching a news report a couple of months back, really probably in the summertime in June, where a Democratic volunteer, I think she was a coordinator, but she was really saying, you know, I'm sounding the alarm here in Nevada. What we're seeing is this state becoming more and more red. And they were concerned. She was concerned at that time that the Biden campaign and the Democratic Party wasn't putting enough of a spotlight on Nevada. And one would like to think and hope that that has changed since then. But, you know, I guess time will tell on Nevada, South Carolina, Missouri, and all of these states just a couple hours away. So now getting into the fun forecasting of this election, Dan, can you rank the following states for me from likeliest to go blue to least likely? The states are Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Florida, North Carolina, Iowa, Texas, Arizona, Georgia, Ohio, and Nevada. Of those 11 states, what is your ranking from 1 to 11? Most likely to go in Biden's column tomorrow. Um, from those states, I would probably say that Wisconsin and Michigan are tied as the most likeliest to, to be blue. Um, after that, it would be Nevada and Pennsylvania, then Arizona, and probably North Carolina, Texas, and Georgia are tied. Um, I don't really, I, I, you know, potentially Florida can, can come in a little uh, ahead of those three. And then uh, Iowa and Ohio, which I do believe are going to be uh, very, very close, uh, some of the closest states in this election. And, and we currently have them going for Trump by a tiny margin, but they can go either which way. And to just ponder the thought that if all of those states went blue, we would be looking at one of the greatest landslide defeats in modern history and really the annihilation of the Republican Party as we know it. So we shall see. All right. Now, Dan, I want to hear your official Electoral College prediction for this election. Where do you stand on the numbers? How many of those 538 electoral votes will be going for Biden? How many for Trump? What is your forecast for all the marbles? Uh, So we are still running our last um, model run through. We, we have a lot of new data coming in from organizing and or, organizations and, and organizing data, as well as about uh, what with the 50 or 60 polls that have been released over the past couple of hours and that will be released tomorrow. Um, right now it is Joe Biden at 389 electoral votes. Um, and that uh, you can see that on, on our main page um, in our forecast. The uh, you know, there are a lot of states which are going to be very close, and, and that can be the difference. But right now, that's our semi-final um, Electoral College prediction. Uh, if that changes on Election Day, you can visit ourprogress.org slash forecast and see uh, our final Election Day prediction, which is going to go live. Um, with, with the model is going to be frozen on Tuesday uh, on Election Day at about 4 p.m. So that, that's when the final piece of data will be inputted in. Uh, our, our projection will be sealed for eternity. Sealed for eternity. No pressure, right? Um, so I wanted to talk about your forecast for the Senate races. For example, will Lindsey Graham actually lose his seat as you know, a lot of folks are speculating? You have Jamie Harrison raising 
abnormally large sums of money to try and win over South Carolina. And really, what is the likelihood of Democrats taking total control of Congress plus the White House, having complete domination in D.C., minus, I suppose, the Supreme Court? So right now, it, Democrats are favored to win. Uh, they're expected to, to, they have about a 78% chance, according to our forecast. Um, and that's mostly going to, going to come through the fact that Colorado and Arizona are virtually guaranteed to flip at this point. It's going to be a, a massive upset if Martha McSally or Cory Gardner maintain their seats, um, as well as Doug Jones is, is almost certain to lose his seat, unfortunately. Um, you know, we're still leaving this. Um, we can still see a surprise there, but the, the, the highest likelihood is, is Doug Jones um, loses his seat. And after that, we have Maine, which is pretty, uh, pretty solidly um, anticipated to flip, but still is, is relatively close, and then North Carolina, and that creates that 50-seat uh, majority for Democrats. Uh, after that, there's just a lot of states which are going to be very close. So right now, we do have um, both of the Georgia races headed for a runoff, which means we might only know the um, the the level of the amount of seats Democrats will have um, only on January fifth, I believe the the runoff election is going to be. Um, and we also have very close races with Democrats currently leading in Iowa. That's Theresa Greenfield over Joni Ernst in Montana. That's Steve Bullock over Steve Daines. Um, and obviously, we have a couple other. Uh, seats which could be extreme outlier states like um, you know Mississippi, Texas, um, and Kansas, which uh, and and Alaska, which right now the Republican is leading for anywhere from half a percent to to seven percent, and we might be able to see if 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 this election uh, does end up being a Biden plus ten or, or eleven environment, that's when we might see these seats flipping. Uh, but it's also equally pl- not equally, but it's also plausible that we end the night with a with a 50 50 uh, majority in the u.s senate for democrats uh, with kamala harris breaking that tie and the likelihood of democrats taking total control of congress and the white house is probably about 75 percent right now um it, it is it is likely but not the most it, it is the the uh most likely outcome uh of this election right now meaning they they might gain only a 50 seat majority in the senate but that'll have full control uh, when it comes to Lindsey Graham, I think the race is going to be very close. There are going to be, um, we've personally and and along with uh, uh, with other organizations and PACs have done a lot to zero in and target areas in the state which might vote for the Constitution Party instead of Lindsey Graham. There is a lot of hatred towards him uh, in that state, especially around Greenville. Um, so. That's really the big question mark. Uh, we do believe it's going to be very close. We think Lindsey Graham is not going to win by more than two or so percent if he does. Um, but right now he is favored to win. But again, we just don't know the scope of the amount of Republicans who are going to end up voting um, for the, the, the Constitution Party or just staying home or just leaving the Senate, uh, the, the Senate ballot blank because they just don't like him so much. Mm-hmm. So all in all, he's favored, but by a very narrow margin, and he's likely going to underperform Trump by by uh, by quite a lot. I think Jamie Harrison is just a fantastic candidate, and I really do hope that he can cross this finish line here tomorrow. I do feel sorry for Doug Jones, but I also know that he is being scouted for a very high-level position in a potential Biden administration. Politico recently reported that he is, if not the frontrunner, one of the frontrunners for possibly attorney general under a President Biden. But time will tell. I do feel confident in a blue wave, and I think that's what we're going to see by the end of this week. So, Dan, you've been great. You've helped us out immensely to try to wrap our heads around this election to really come back down to earth and to understand the data to see where we're heading not just tomorrow but throughout the rest of the week hopefully we don't have to wait too long to find out whether or not these polling predictions and forecasts were accurate 
for your sake, for everyone's sake, I hope you hit the nail on the head. Do you have any parting words for the audience about what we can expect generally on November 3rd, Election Day? Um, overall, I think it's it's just, uh, uh, you know, make sure you're, you vote. Make sure you get your friends and family to vote. This is going to air on Election Day, um, I hope, or before Election Day, um, which, you know, just make sure you, your friends and your family all show up to vote. And if you do that, I think that everyone can expect a, a smooth a smooth ride. But um, the the point here is is that just take the data as you see it, right? Um, you know, don't let candidates or specific committees dictate what the narrative is, and um, um, and just wait for for the results to be counted. You know, a lot of people. Uh, uh, you know, get get a lot of get a lot of snacks and and a lot of booze and just wait uh, <laughs> just wait it out and 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 let uh, let let us our data team and all the decision desks around the country uh, pull our hair out trying to get every precinct level data in and and processing all that um, and and hopefully we'll wake up on November fourth with with a good outcome and uh, and and we can start restoring a lot of the the issues that we've had and and tackling. A lot of issues that are not partisan, um, but but issues that the country is facing, uh, and, and really try to get uh, progress done on those things. Well said. Well, Dan, I can't thank you enough for stopping on the show to help break all of this down. It is greatly appreciated. Please send my best to the entire team over at the Progress Campaign. Thank you so much for all the work you're doing. I wish you well. I wish you sleep in the near future after this is all said and done and i really hope we're able to do this again in the near future good luck tomorrow night and the rest of the way thank you so much for having me and uh and and happy election day or week you can check out the link to the progress campaign's official forecast in the description to this episode you can also find a link to donate to the progress campaign and help fund them so that they can continue their extraordinary work for many years in elections to come i've also added links to twitter handles where you can go and check out updates as they happen live both from the progress campaign and their official data polling and forecasting account so before we end the show here today I guess it's time for me to make my official Electoral College prediction. It's kind of hard following Dan, considering the amount of knowledge that he has compared to me, but we'll go with it. Just got to trust the instincts and hope for the best. So here we go. I have 270towin.com up in front of me, where I go to create the hypothetical maps, and I have changed... All of their battleground states to toss-ups. Even though some may be leaning blue, some may be leaning red. So I'm going to start with the easier ones, so to speak. And I'm going up to Wisconsin and Michigan. You heard Dan talk earlier about he thinks that those two states are really the likeliest to go blue. So I tend to agree with him and I'm going to switch Wisconsin and Michigan blue. At that point, we're at Biden 253 to Trump's 125. Obviously, Biden then has a nice advantage. But where will he make up the remaining 17 electoral votes? Well, I'm going to go to Pennsylvania next. Pennsylvania not just because it's my home state, but because I've seen the data, I've looked at the trends. I'm also using my gauge to see what's happening on the ground, where I'm at, Trump country, ruby red, Pennsylvania. And I can tell you as a matter of fact, my local committee has never had as many yard sign requests, memorabilia requests, pins, buttons, all the like, in either 2008, 2012 or 2016. So Joe Biden is really energizing, you could call dormant, 
Democratic voters or independent voters, and even some Republicans, to get out and defeat Donald Trump. We're seeing a lot of that here in rural central Pennsylvania, and it's promising. So that's why Pennsylvania, in my book, goes blue. What happens then? Joe Biden, at 273 electoral votes, wins the presidency. But I want to go around and look at some of these other states first. Let's go to, say, Nevada. Nevada, in my opinion, you heard Dan talk earlier, it could be a shocker. And while I am concerned with the direction that the state is going in terms of registration and trends, I think for 2020, for now, Nevada goes blue on election night. That brings Biden up to 279 electoral votes. Where do we look next? Next, I'm looking at Arizona. Arizona has a strong and formidable Senate candidate named Mark Kelly, who is poised and and looking like he will become the next senator from Arizona, which is why I turn Arizona blue. Because one of the interesting things is I actually believe Joe Biden might ride the coattails of the Senate candidate, Mark Kelly, which is usually not the way things work out. Usually it's the opposite way around. But Arizona goes blue, in my opinion, which takes Joe Biden to 290 electoral votes and Donald Trump at 125. I think the big question, and if you were a better, one of the greatest over-unders that you could try to come up with if you were one of these companies is Does Donald Trump go under or over 200 electoral votes? I think that is a question that is extremely difficult to answer because it really could go either way. Let's look at Texas right now. Texas is the Democrats' dream to turn blue, and things look very promising. Things weren't promising in 2016 because Donald Trump won it handedly. But we had a candidate named Beto O'Rourke in 2018, who gave Ted Cruz a fight for his life. Texas is getting more blue. The question is, has it arrived to the Democrats' doorstep this early? I so, so badly want to have Texas go blue. I want to press blue right now in front of me. But also remember that it's Texas. And these Texan voters are still energized for President Trump. And I just don't think 2020 is the year that it goes blue. So Texas, in my opinion, is in the red column. Donald Trump then goes to 163 electoral votes. But boy, I have never wanted to be more wrong in my life. Now let's keep on moving east across the country, taking a look at Iowa. Iowa is a very, very interesting place this year. As Dan had mentioned, he believes Iowa and Ohio are going to be two of the tightest races this year. For the longest time on my map, I had Iowa blue. Literally until this past week, because we have more polls coming out. I think one showed Trump up seven on Biden. And the other thing, just like Arizona, I'm also taking a look at the Senate race. And the Senate race in Iowa starting to look less promising than it once was. The Republican there, Joni Ernst, is starting to look more and more like an incumbent victory over Teresa Greenfield, the Democratic challenger. For that reason, I am pushing Iowa in President Trump's column. That brings him up to 169 electoral votes. Remember, this model I have right now, I'm putting... Pennsylvania, in Joe Biden's column, giving him the Electoral College victory. But for this purpose, we're continuing on with the other states. We then have Ohio, North Carolina, Georgia, and Florida. These states are tricky. I'll come off the bat right now and just say that I don't see Ohio turning blue this election. I think Ohio goes red. I think Ohio voters are just too conservative or maybe too anti-liberal to try and go for a Democratic candidate right now. So Ohio 
to Trump's column. Let's take a look next at North Carolina. North Carolina is a state that I believe Joe Biden will win on election night. I'm feeling confident in North Carolina based off of the data and based off of things that I'm hearing from folks in North Carolina. So that is why I turn North Carolina blue, putting Joe Biden over 300 electoral votes at 305. Maine's second congressional district, an interesting place that has a lot of attention on it. I'm putting Maine's second congressional district in Joe Biden's column, although I would not be surprised to see it remain red as it did four years ago. And by the way, Nebraska's second congressional district I have placed in Joe Biden's column as well. So right now, with two states outstanding, 45 vote electoral votes left, Joe Biden I have at 306 electoral votes to Donald Trump's 187. So where do I go next? I'm going Florida. What do I think happens in Florida? This has been a very difficult decision that I've been pondering over for the past several weeks. Florida, Florida, Florida. I've learned not to trust Florida. I've learned, like we saw in the 2018 governor's race, Ron DeSantis was behind in a lot of averages leading up to the election, and he ended up winning that by a very slim margin. I am going to take that election and use it as a blueprint for what I think happens on election day. Florida, as much as it pains me, I believe will be going red. But fear not, because as it stands, Donald Trump will still lose in that scenario. And my last prediction the state of Georgia, in its 16 electoral votes, I believe will bode well for Joe Biden. I predict Georgia will go blue, will honor the legacy of its late, great Congressman John Lewis, and will help to get this country back on track. So, where does that leave me? My final electoral college prediction for the 2020 presidential race. Joe Biden, 322 electoral votes to Donald Trump's 216 electoral votes. Sounds good to me. Let's see if it sounds good to the voters. So just to wrap up, my friends, here we go. This election will be unlike any other. Pennsylvania, for example, is going to look red on Tuesday night. Prepare for that scenario. For example, Cumberland County had announced that they weren't going to begin their mail-in processing until Wednesday, the 4th, at 9 a.m. And they are becoming a blue county. So on election night, you're going to hear it. Cumberland County, 70% Trump's favor. Take a big sigh of relief. Like Dan said, grab some booze if you want. The precincts have reported, but not the majority of the people have actually had their voices heard. And they will be heard. Will Pennsylvania matter in the end? Maybe it won't. Maybe by midnight, Joe Biden has already hit 270 electoral votes. It's possible. For our sake, we hope that that's the case. But irregardless, this is a momentous period in our country's history. This is a time for all of us to unite, to rise up, to say... That Donald Trump, everything he stands for, called Trumpism, that doesn't represent our values. That's not who we are, and it's not where we want to be. For the youth of our nation to grow up in a country under Donald Trump, that's not something that we can afford four more years of. My friends, go out and vote. Make your voice heard. Let's turn the tide of this country. Let's defeat Donald Trump. Let's elect Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. And let's get back on track. We can do this when we all come together. It's been quite the whirlwind covering the 2020 presidential election. 
both from the primaries to the conventions to the debates to this very moment in time. And on the 4th of November, I sincerely hope that the sun may rise on an America who has chosen light over darkness, love over hate, and Joe Biden over Donald Trump. For the arc of the moral universe is long, my friends, but it bends towards justice. Remember that. No more commercials will be aired. No more polling will be conducted. It's you, the voting booth, and the future of our country. A country that can become truly great if we opt for a new path forward. Please go out and vote on Tuesday, November 3rd. And that does it for me. I'll catch you all on the other side, whatever it may look like. Have hope. Stay positive. We'll get through this together as one. A special thanks to Dan Krowich from the Progress Campaign for joining us to preview the election. And I'll talk to you all next time from a nation redeemed. I'm Jordan Rohn. Take care, everybody. I come here to urge every person under the sound of my voice to go to the polls on the 3rd of November and vote your convictions. Now, I know you're intelligent people, and I don't need to tell you who you should vote for. I don't have any fear about that. You know who to vote for. I'm just asking you to vote. Suffice it to say that we stand in one of the most momentous periods of human history. And in these days of emotional tension, when the problems of the world are gigantic in extent and chaotic in detail, all men of goodwill must make the right decisions. We'll go to the polls on November 3rd, and I hope we will have a great day in our nation so that when we wake up on the 4th of November, we will know that America has made the right decisions.